In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus came by water and blood. It was not only by water, but by water and blood. What does this mean? It means that Jesus did not come only to cleanse us from our sin by some otherworldly spiritual power that we need him to cleanse us with, but that we know not how it works or where his almighty spiritual power may come from. No, Jesus did not come by water only, as though the power it contained were unknowable, either in his dark, mysterious counsel that you can't investigate, or else somehow activated in our energized and excited will that we must constantly be investigating. No, no. The spiritual power by which Jesus cleanses us from all our sin and guilt is bound to the blood he shed by which he suffered for our sin and guilt. This means that we know where his power to cleanse us from sin comes from. And we know how it works. It is God who cleanses us from our sin for the sake of Jesus. If there's anything to investigate, we are to investigate where Jesus tells us to investigate. Put your fingers here, he said. Search the scriptures, he says. And these two things go together. Jesus did not come by water only, but by water and blood. We know that his word does what he says it does because he himself did what he says he'd do. First, Jesus came in order to win salvation for us by earning peace and reconciliation in his blood. He came by blood. Second, he came in order to deliver to us through the word, which he, what he accomplished with his life and death. He came by water. Jesus gives what he wins. He does, and then he speaks. Jesus came by water and blood. And the Holy Spirit bears witness. The Holy Spirit tells the truth. The Holy Spirit is the truth. The Holy Spirit binds himself to no spiritual cleansing except that spiritual cleansing which applies the work of God the Son to you. They agree as one. The Holy Spirit does nothing at all and offers no spiritual insight or illumination or purity or wisdom or voice at all, apart from bearing witness with the water and the blood. And this is extremely important, lest you search for the blood and never find it, or else search in the water and never find anything in it. The Holy Spirit does not work in the water apart from applying through the water what Jesus earned for you and fulfilled by shedding his blood. The Holy Spirit's testimony is found in the preaching of Christ crucified for you, which links forever the water and the blood, the winning and the giving. The power of the water is not in the water, 
The power of the water is in the word. So we say of holy baptism. The power of the word is not an incantation. It is not a spell that puts inexplicable power into the water. Of course not. The power of the word is that it tells and gives and bestows what the blood accomplished. That which gives the water power to regenerate is that which gives you power to believe. It engages your mind. It instructs you. It teaches you to know God by knowing what he did for you and by you learning how to apply its significance in your life. The invitation of Jesus to search the scriptures, therefore, is itself an invitation for you to reach your hand here, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. The new birth of water in the word is an invitation to hear the gospel. It makes newborn babes of you who desire to grow. Baptism saves us because Jesus puts into the water the value of his own self-giving sacrifice for us. He bore the wrath of God by shedding his blood. He bore the wrath of God against you. This is the basis for the peace he is able to give you. You need to be covered in the blood of Christ. Jesus covers you in his blood by coming first by blood and second by water. He wins by his blood. He gives in the water. This is true of baptism. And it is true by extension of every application of the gospel. He wins and he gives what Jesus did for you in order that you may be saved. He did for you in order that you may believe. Because we are saved by faith in what he has done. And this is how absolution saves us too. Jesus wants you to believe no less than he wanted his disciples to believe. This is how anything saves us that saves us. If Jesus is not stingy in giving us means by which we are saved from our sins through faith, it is because he was not stingy on the cross when he bore our sin. From baptism to absolution to the preaching of the gospel to the Lord's Supper, which we just sang about on purpose. The reason Jesus is not stingy in his means of grace is because he was not stingy in earning that grace for you. Jesus poured himself completely out. No sin he failed to bear and feel the punishment for in his holy body and soul. You need what Jesus did on the cross to be brought to you. Jesus brings it to you where the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son bears witness. The grace by which he suffered for you willingly is not categorically a different grace from the grace by which he brings this peace to you. It's the same grace. The Holy Spirit bears witness that you are reconciled to God the Father through the blood of God the Son. The Holy Spirit bears witness with the blood. Where Jesus earns your salvation, the Holy Spirit bears witness with the water where Jesus gives you salvation. And there is one Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness with the water and the blood together, and these cannot be separated. On Easter night, and again a week later, when Thomas had rejoined the others, the risen Lord showed his hands 
and sighed. With his hands, he showed that he had suffered. He was pierced through. And with his side, he showed that he had died, since it gave evidence when water and blood came out that he was already dead. And he said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said again, Peace to you. It was only after they saw his, his scars that they were glad when they saw the Lord. It was only after when the disciples had connected this peace be with you to the very body that was raised that had suffered and died for them that they were glad. If we fail to bring this peace constantly united to the body that bore it, all sin in order to earn that peace, It will be an empty word, and we will not be glad. He breathed on them his Holy Spirit, breath that came from flesh and blood that was once dead and now alive. He breathes on us his Holy Spirit, too, through the word that shows us the same thing that he showed his disciples. He shows that he suffered and died for us. Words that do not show you this are words that cannot bring you peace with God. The peace of God, which is delivered to us in words, is bound to the wounds of Jesus in the very same way as the water and blood are bound to each other. This is what 1 John 5 is teaching us. Jesus' resurrection proves the permanent joining of the water and the blood that flowed from his side. The blood that gives power to the water and the water that applies the blood to us. The water is the application of the blood. So the peace which we hear in the gospel is the application of what Jesus did on the cross. First he wins peace, then he says peace. They go together. His word and his work are joined in objective reality. You judge what Jesus did on the cross by the word he speaks to you. He says he did it for you to give you peace with God against whom you have sinned. You judge the words you hear by what you know of your Lord's suffering and death. He is the one who came to bear your sins and who rose again. By hearing the gospel, you discern where the Spirit is working. What is objective, that is true, outside of you, becomes subjective. That is, it becomes true inside of you. So it has always been that the Holy Spirit interests himself and applies himself to what God the Father and Son are doing for you. In the very beginning, the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters that God created by speaking his word. Nowhere else did he hover. Nowhere else was he pleased to be than where he was investigating and approving of and searching out the good thing that God had made through his Son. The word by which all things were made was himself then made flesh. God's Son became true man. So now in the new beginning, where do we suppose the Holy Spirit is hovering? Here, as God establishes and publishes his new creation of all who believe, the Holy Spirit hovers only over those waters 
that are comprehended in God's command and connected with God's word as it relates to baptism, but also those waters which by figure of speech apply to wherever clean water is sprinkled on you through the preaching of the gospel. Nowhere else will he bear witness. Nowhere else is he pleased to be than where he searches and approves of what God has redeemed through his Son. And this is what he teaches us to investigate. We investigate this, that the water and the blood go together, that Jesus winning and Jesus giving go together, because Jesus' word and work go together. Your faith is the work of the Holy Spirit. Your faith saves you because it receives and embraces the merit and obedience of Jesus that he gives you by promising you that your sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit enables you to believe this by bearing witness not only with the means of grace, that they work somehow, but also and therefore also and always at the same time by bearing witness with what Jesus once did on Calvary. He did it for you. The Holy Spirit bears witness to you that you are born of God by bearing witness to you what the only begotten Son of God has done for you. The water and blood go together. Jesus' word and work go together. And this is what your faith does. It is constantly investigating the connection between Jesus' word and Jesus' work. Between the water and the blood. Now, your faith saves you because of what it receives. But faith also does. That baby's a baby. Has life because of what he received. But he must grow up. He must do. And this is what faith, which saves you because of what it receives, yet this is what it does. It investigates. That it may grow thereby. It investigates what it loves. As a bride is pleased enough to be adorned in a beautiful dress and to see adoring eyes cast upon her, Yet, what is she then most eager to do but to see what she looks like? To find a mirror and to appreciate the beauty that everyone else is already praising her for. So also this is what we desire. The angels marvel at our royal robe of righteousness that God himself is pleased to dress us in and to see us wearing. And we, as Christians, desire to step back and see it too. We want to know what we are clothed in. We want to learn how it was woven and from what material it was spun. We care how it looks and what it came from just as much as we care that it is regarded by others as beautiful. Faith saves by being clothed. But faith also desires to step back and see the clothing. And so it is the nature of Christian faith to investigate the Christian life that you desire to live. The Christian life that pursues the righteousness that is already clothing you. And it is in the nature of your saving faith to love Jesus. 
and to know more about what he has done and what he tells you. So very similarly, we want to see and appreciate the faces of the ones we embrace in love, right? We take breaks in our embraces to look at each other, at our grandchildren, our children, spouses, dear siblings and friends, all while not really letting go. Faith saves because it receives and holds tight. But faith that does this is always also faith that steps back to look. The Holy Spirit himself teaches us to do this. He himself was in creation, present to create all that the Father spoke his word to create. He himself is present now to create in us faith that believes that we are reconciled to the Father through the work of the same incarnate word. So also, the Holy Spirit investigates and searches out the beauty and perfection of God's creation, even as he searches out the beauty and perfection of God's salvation, of poor sinners who are ever grateful. And he searches out your heart in order to teach you. He saves us by Jesus' blood. He also teaches us to investigate how and why the water and blood go together in such a wonderful way to bring us all that Christ has earned for us. So we must be somewhat easy on Thomas because he represents all of us. He represents the doubt that attacks us all the time. He represents also the desire to step back and investigate the truth of Christ's resurrection. But Thomas' problem was not that he desired to investigate. And that's not your problem either. No, it was that he put the cart before the horse. He thought he needed to investigate in order to believe. But it was the opposite. He needed to believe in order to to investigate. You can't step back to see how you look if you're not wearing anything to look at. You can't step back to see the face of the one you're hugging if you're not hugging anyone. When we hear the story of Thomas, we are stepping back and seeing our own story. We are seeing the struggle of faith against doubt. We are seeing our own desire to examine the righteousness of faith and the peace we have with God. But we're seeing it apart from listening to his word and believing it. Do not investigate your faith and the desires of your heart. Apart from hearing God's word, you will find the emptiness that Thomas found. Your ability to believe is not deep in your heart. Your ability to believe is where the Holy Spirit bears witness with you that Jesus winning your salvation and Jesus giving your salvation are forever bound. We see Thomas shamefully disbelieving. He is naked and alone, as it were. But we also see Jesus bearing patiently with him, eager to clothe and embrace him. Just look at what Jesus rebukes. He doesn't rebuke Peter for his denial, 
At least it's not recorded for us. We don't hear of him rebuking any of, any of the others for their cowardice. None of the twelve made any effort to anoint their Lord's body or see to his burial. But Jesus breathes no word about it. He breathes something better. He comes with peace to bring. The only thing he rebukes, therefore, is their refusal to believe in this peace. He rebukes them for refusing to believe the women who first heard that he was raised and Mary Magdalene who saw him. Then he rebukes them for not believing the disciples who came from Emmaus, who had seen the Lord Jesus and the breaking of bread. And then finally he rebukes Thomas for refusing to believe the others who had seen him on Easter night. Jesus' only rebuke is the rebuke of doubting his word. If there is rebuke of your sin, when God's word tells you not to do what you want to do, when God tells you that you have sinned, herein you find what he is truly rebuking. You find his deep concern for you. He wants you to believe that your sins are forgiven. He wants to make you free through faith. For there is no access to the value of Christ's suffering and death apart from his word. So this, in summary, is the simple and profound lesson which I have repeated again and again that St. John teaches us in those words we consider. Jesus Christ came by water and blood. The Holy Spirit does not bear witness just with the blood without also bearing witness with the water. Nor just with the water without also bearing witness with the blood. The whole point of all Jesus did and suffered was to deliver something to you. And what he delivers to you is the entire value of all he suffered and died and rose to win. The whole point is for you to be born again, born of God, to gain faith in what Jesus has done, to hunger and thirst for it, and to grow by being fed as a newborn babe who desires what is wholesome. To refuse to believe that your sins are forgiven by God is the same as to refuse to believe that Jesus rose. To refuse to hear this word by which the Holy Spirit teaches you to look at what he is looking at is to deny both the water and the blood. Jesus rebukes this unbelief. The reason he rebukes unbelief is not because it is the one sin that still gets under his skin. And it's not the reason that Jesus gave to his church on earth, commanding his pastors to exercise this power to retain the sins of those who do not repent. No, the reason he rebukes this sin of impenitence and unbelief, even to this day, is because he is still earnest and sincere in his desire for you to receive what he won. Those who persist in sin are not sorry. Their sins are not forgiven. Not because Jesus didn't die for them, but because... Such sinners refuse the peace that Jesus gives. And Thomas himself was the first one whose sins were retained. They were retained. He refused to believe the word. Thank God his sins were retained. Thank God that he was compelled to find no peace in anything he tried except where the water and blood bore witness. For there is no peace anywhere than where the risen Lord Jesus gives it. There is no sin that Jesus did not die to take away. There is nothing that gets under his skin or wears his patience thin. 
that he is not all the more eager to forgive in you and to replace with divine peace. This is what the Holy Spirit bears witness to. Only unbelief does he rebuke in order that you might be believing. His power to overcome the world he proved when he rose from the dead, the death he died for you. And your power to overcome the world he proves when you believe it. He is still overcoming the world by teaching you and rebuking you. And above all, by giving you peace with God that the world cannot know or take away. Because Jesus is your Lord and God. He is your righteousness and your reconciliation. God himself bears witness to you that it is true. In Jesus' name, amen.